Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Peggy Klaus. She's an executive coach who's been retained by some of the largest companies in the world. I first came across Peggy's work in a Harvard Business Review article she wrote some years ago, and well, now we're doing an interview. I really enjoyed our conversation as Peggy reveals a number of ways C-suite executives and yourself can build your personal brand and tactfully be memorable. Her career, which reached Wall Street, has its roots in Hollywood, where she worked as a producer, director, and talent coach for Paramount, Warner Brothers, and other big names. Whether you're building your career or pitching your company to raise capital, Peggy's advice will shed some light on how you can increase your presence and truly be outstanding. It's well worth the time. I'm sure happy we connected to do this interview. When it comes to learning about key strategies and tactics for attracting, engaging, and retaining investors, we also have a masterclass for you. Digital Investor Marketing 2.0 covers everything you need to know about how to build successful investor marketing programs for your public company. If you're a CEO, CFO, or IR pro, be sure to sign up at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass. Your investor marketing program should be an accretive use of capital, so be sure to access it at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass, or click the link in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Peggy, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Corey. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. I've been telling a few people that you and I connected, unbeknownst to you, but from me reading an article you wrote for Harvard Business Review, and this was four or five years ago that I read that. And here we are finally speaking now. I thought it was a great article about CEOs and that they should, uh, I think, shut their mouth, <laughs> you know, know before they speak kind of thing. Anyway, I think we have a great conversation ahead of us, but the best place to start is with an introduction from yourself. So I'll pass it on over to you. Okay. Well, let me start early on. I grew up the youngest of four girls in a suburb outside of Philadelphia. And my mom passed away when I was 10, my father when I was 21. And I tell you and your listeners that because losing them at such a young age is truly at the core of who I am and what I do. Because their passing really embedded in me a sense of how finite our time is here on earth and the belief that I better make the very most of it. It gave me gratitude for each day we're given, for good health, for wonderful people in my life. And yet, Corey, while really appreciating the support and the love of sisters and friends and family and eventually people who became my clients and colleagues, I knew that at that very early age that my life was my responsibility. 
that at the end of the day, like all of us, I am alone. And it's not a depressing thing. It's just a real knowing at that early age, which I don't think, as many of my friends have said, that they knew until they were much younger. So it really propelled me to just do things that I really wanted to do and not do things that I didn't want to do. And that has been a theme in my professional and my personal life. So growing up, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, maybe even a politician. But then I caught the acting bug and I added theater and opera to my undergrad degree and then went to study in London. And I came back to the States and worked as an actor and a classical singer while also coaching actors and comedians on-air reporters and anchors, talk show hosts, some of whom you've probably seen. And then I got involved in working on sitcoms. And it was really fun, Corey. But after a while, the work just didn't really fulfill me, my purpose and my values. And also the illness of a very dear friend during that time, I got to see how poorly doctors communicated with patients and their families and caregivers. And that's when I made the pivot from Hollywood to healthcare and found these two wonderful physicians on both coasts of the United States. And we put together the first communications course for medical professionals. And Mm -hmm. it was a course that used actors as patients and real physicians. So it was really quite the the newest thing because before that, they really hadn't talked about doctor-patient communication. But then all those healthcare institutions wanted my intellectual property for about a dollar. And I said, no, no, that, no, even to me, that doesn't seem right. And (laughs) I, I, right at that time, friends of mine were climbing the corporate ladder on Wall Street and they called and they said, Peg, can you come and help us with media interviews and speeches? And I tell you, Corey, I knew nothing about finance. I mean, I didn't know an analyst from my portfolio manager. I had never heard of LIBOR before. And what I did know, though, is that I could make these very smart professionals more interesting, more entertaining, and definitely, and most importantly, more impactful to their audiences. And that's when I started my coaching business and began coaching in every industry from finance to fashion or biotech, software, the entertainment business, oil and gas nonprofits, and then it morphed into leadership. Wow. it's I love the backstory. And I think that you and I could talk for hours about, I mean, uh, so many different topics there. For our, for our listeners who you know are in the business world, let's stick with the coaching and, and the work you do now. As I understand, you've worked with some of the biggest names in the world and, and management teams with household names of, of international conglomerates, you know, very, very notable clients. Now, walk us through that. You talk about somebody being more interesting, being more compelling as, a, as an executive, as a leader. What does that mean for somebody in the corporate world? Well, I think I would start with 
the term executive presence. And it's not a coincidence that the term exists, although I might add snarkily that many executives don't have it, unfortunately. And I see that as the ability to be able to communicate with a compelling combination of both warmth and strength. And warmth is bringing forth the best part of your personality, the part that comes out when you're very comfortable with family and friends. And so you're able to be conversational and humorous and empathic and caring and great eye contact and vocal volume. And then the strength is your experience and expertise. And it is this combination of warmth and strength that gives someone this executive presence, this gravitas, this ability to be inspiring, motivating, and to have poise under pressure. So executive presence is really, really important. And I work with a lot of clients on that. I always find it interesting when professionals are confident that they know who they are, they are able to accept their strengths as well as their weaknesses. And I just wrote a piece in my newsletter saying confidence does not equal arrogance because I think we confuse those two. But I think that sense of confidence is so important in a professional in any realm that they're in as, and it certainly as they get into the C-suite, that sense of confidence, because I think people can really tell if people feel uncomfortable, if, if their leaders have that sense of imposter syndrome. I think courage is absolutely critical. Credibility, charisma, connection. I think those would be the things. So I just spent uh a number of weeks with one of our past podcast guests. And I asked him about imposter syndrome. He's led a, a very outstanding career through some household names as well, CEO leadership positions. And I asked him, did you ever have imposter syndrome? And what I found so interesting was he didn't even know what it was. I had to explain it to him. Now, now he's a European and has you know a different exposure there. So two things came from that. One was a level of confidence and as well with him, an empathy in which he had, which I thought was extraordinary. But the other was a, for me to question, is imposter syndrome geographic? Is it something that we just coined out of, out of Silicon Valley and it's a hot topic regionally? Or is it something that's a global issue that perhaps he just hadn't heard about? Mm. Can I ask Corey if this gentleman is obviously male, but is he Caucasian? Uh, yes. So I love that he doesn't have imposter syndrome. I love that he had never heard of it. And I think it's a great thing that you introduced it to him because I find that most people in the world have this imposter syndrome, the feeling that either they don't deserve to have the position that they have, someone's always going to find out, that they really don't know as much as they do. Unfortunately, it is most prevalent among women and women of color. 
Those, okay. those are the okay. two groups that I've worked yeah. mostly with. So I can't say really men of color, but this is my experience of it. And I think it comes from a lot of different places. It comes from our societal, religious, familial upbringings. And women are taught to just, well, let me go, let me go back. I mean, I've been doing this work for almost 30 years and the number of women in leadership positions at that time was so insignificant. And so as women rise in the ranks, you're going to see this, of course, more and more. And this is what I've been seeing. And I was being interviewed the other day and someone said, oh, well, Peggy, isn't imposter syndrome just for junior people, junior women? And I said, I wish I could say that. But the executive women that I work with, you scratch the surface and it's right there. Interesting. Okay. I I appreciate that you've broadened that scope of where it can come from. Everything from presence of, of you know, oneself compared to others within the boardroom, if you will, all the way down to the familial level of, of just families and the pressures there and how that influences your own thoughts. And so I appreciate that. One thing that, that when I asked him about this, he did say, he's like, well, why, why would I have it? I, I went through, you know, endless interviews of them pressuring me and, and clearly they'd made the decision. And so why would I be an imposter? I, I didn't just force myself in. So I was like, hmm, interesting mindset. It is unbelievable the inner monologues that so many women have going on in their heads, as I said, at the top of their fields. And it's things, I call it the nasty roommate syndrome, where the nasty roommate is saying things like, well, you're really not smart enough. You didn't deserve this. Who do you think you are? Don't get too big for your britches. And then comes all the personal things like, oh, you know, that was a bad suit that you wore. You're unattractive. You're too fat. I mean, it goes on and on. Those, if you could go inside the head of a woman, it is frightening. It is really frightening. I don't frightening. think it's just for women because I mean, some of that goes through my head as well. Like, what in the hell were you thinking? What, you know, and you're, and, and I just want to bring in something. I just finished a book. I believe it's The Confident Mind. I'm going to, I don't want to look it up, but it's a wonderful book, which really talks about finding your first win and enabling your mind to, to go to a positive place versus that negative of, you know, starting to just question yourself versus identifying like, you know, the things you need to be remembering, like the wins you've had and not, not just marinating in the mistakes. It's a wonderful technique, and it's a, a prompt that I give to my clients all the time. It is that pull, that irrevocable pull of negativity, or what I call the shadows, that get people stuck in that mindset of, I'm not good enough, I didn't deserve this, oh, they're going to find... It, it's just endless. Wow. So I'm glad we're talking about this, and... and- <laughs> Peggy, you and I need to start our own podcast because I swear you and I could talk for hours and hours. But I want to bring this back to to your experience in theater and the experience of executives in the boardroom. And, and this is for me, it's topical because I was just speaking with the CEO of a of a company, 
And they were going to go do a video interview. And I said, okay, just listen, before you go on that, do me a favor. Do not come out of the gate saying you're a listed company. You're based here. You have this many employees and this, this, this. Don't spew the facts and figures, please. Come out hard. You know, come out with the the macro narrative we're all believing in because we're betting on your company and say it's this. And if you believe this too, you should be investing in this. And I want to tell you about our company. Bring the emotion, bring the incitement. And that to me is theater. And so I was sharing this with hopes that that this individual would would break free from the, I think the, I don't know, it's just like the, the rote memory default and bring themselves in and put on a performance. Can you tell me more about that? Because I think that's some of the work that you do with, with the executives and the clients that you coach. Yeah. Well, when I first started on Wall Street, I got to sit on, on some trainings offered by people that the companies had brought in. They were formulaic. They were boring. I didn't remember a thing that the speaker said when he walked off the stage. And I thought, I can't stand this. This is, this is not how people learn and remember you from walking off the stage. And so I took my theater background as an actor and as a producer and director. And it was really all about at that point when I was working in Hollywood, taking the individual performer, finding out what was unique and special about them, and then bringing that out and letting that shine. And these other trainings were not doing that. It was giving them a list of 25 do's and don'ts. You know, don't cross your hands in front of your chest. Don't put them behind your back. Don't put them in front of your crotch. Don't put them here. This And, and people get so crazy about the do's and don'ts that they lose their best personality. That, back to executive presence, comes back when they are feeling comfortable in front of friends and family, right? But when you mm. put someone in front of a board or in front of colleagues or in front of investors, and all of a sudden, I call it the communication meltdown. It's like the Wicked Witch and the Wizard of Oz. They melt down. And so how to get them into their best self to show up, to know that this is really entertainment. It's not just about the facts, ma'am. It's about entertaining and impacting your audience. So I think the advice you gave was great. I have found over these many years is that when they can see themselves give the first iteration of a pitch or presentation, and I show it to them and they're horrified because they realize how terrible it is and how boring it is and that they even wouldn't want to sit in front of this. Then the coaching takes place and gets them out of their comfort zone, gives them some techniques, and then they see the difference, you know, and the video doesn't lie. Video does not lie. Very true. Yeah, it's. It's hard to listen to some to your own voice sometimes, let alone if you watch yourself in a presentation that you've just given a you know a board or, or whatever. There's a, <laughs> that could be very pivotal. Oh, it's it's devastating sometimes. 
You know, you just want to put your hands over your ears and say, oh, no, I didn't really say it that way or I didn't really explain it that way. But a lot of the times, Corey, it's because, oh, yeah, I got to say it. Business professionals do not prepare and practice in the way that they need to. So I call it the 80-20 rule. 80% of the time, when you practice just like, oh, I, I know this. I don't really need to practice. I can say it once in my head and then I'm done because I've been doing this for 25 years. So whatever comes out of my mouth is just going to be fine. Well, when you do that, 80% of the time you fail to truly impact your audience. When that happens, when that preparation and practice is followed like that, 20% of the time you succeed. And unfortunately, that's just enough of a reinforcer to have executives and really all business professionals keep preparing and practicing in that way. And it, it just doesn't work. So this is what I drive home to them, that every time you open your mouth, you are being judged. Yes. Very true. And I think about when for myself or when I've, when I've had others that I've, that I've coached through and said, change your tack, change your approach and how you're doing this, how you're communicating. It's really uncomfortable at first because if 80% of, of what you've done or, or the you know, majority of, of your communication has been in this one format, and then you have to change that to get some excitement and some personality, which the individual has, but now you're asking them to bring it out in different situations. It is. It's very uncomfortable at first. And so I, yeah, I appreciate you sharing. It is. This. And that's why I tell them in every executive coaching session or workshop, I say, I have told your boss that I should not get paid unless I make each and every one of you uncomfortable. Amazing. <laughs> wow. And I do make that and, and that they have to get out of that comfort zone in order to change that behavior that is so stuck. And you think about it, they are in a quote, very professional environment. And it's been done this way for a hundred years. And if they go outside of that norm, well, guess what? they're going to be judged. But the fact is, I tell everybody, you're being judged all the time. So you might as well, A, have a great time doing it, and B, really grab your audience. Yes, yes. And you know, if you're being judged and, and you're being judged as mediocre, then you're flatlining. Now, if you can, if you can put yourself forward and, and elevate yourself such that you're still within that, that framework of professionalism that your organization needs, or that in our case, when we speak to CEOs and investor relations professionals, what investors want to see, it's, it's going to be better. Taking a bit of a risk, but how much of a risk is it? Because there's nothing that's wasted time, wasted breath, and just flatlining and being mediocre. Well, and I started at a financial firm, and the first group I had was they were doing Investor Day. And it was back when you were actually in front of people 
at places like the Waldorf Astoria, 300 analysts. And the, the guy who hired me said, I don't want to do it in the same old boring way. I want to break the mold. And that was wonderful for him to give me that carte blanche and to be so open. And quite frankly, it made a huge difference in his own presentation, in the team's presentation, and in the results that they got from that investor day. So I think the proof is in the pudding. And it was early on that I was doing this. So I was kind of seen as a bit wacky. And now, almost 30 years later, people say, oh, yeah, oh, I get this. Right. We can't bore people. Yes. Yeah. Have you have you ever worked with any celebrity CEOs, the types that that grab the market's attention there, that charismatic individual, they they have it. And what are those characteristic traits and and perhaps what are those stories that you might have of them? (laughs) Well, I do sign NDAs. I think the ability to be a storyteller and to continually tell stories and the right stories. I think it also knowing who your audience is. So I have some tips for my clients that when we are preparing a speech or a presentation of any kind or a pitch, I ask them to think about who is the audience. Now, I know that seems really like a silly thing to have to say to someone who's preparing this, but you can't imagine, Corey, how many people have started off with me and saying, well, Peg, this is what I want to say. And it's kind of audience be damned. And I say, wait a minute, hold on back up, reframe. Who is your audience? What are their goals, needs, and objectives? In other words, why are they putting their butts in those seats to listen to you? And then we go from there and I say, tune into the radio station, WIFTFM. What's in it for them? And be very specific about what's in it for them. Also, then, because you know these folks, well, bad presenters can go on and on and on because they think more is more, to be able to really narrow it down to what must they know. So I give my clients a scenario. I say, suppose right before you go on stage, you have this half an hour presentation you're going to give. And the sponsor taps you on the shoulder and says, you have two minutes. That's it. And I say, then heighten it and say, you've got two minutes before the ceiling comes down on everybody's head. So what would you tell them besides they're the exits and what must they know? And it really is a great leveler of information. 
And then we go on to to look at what's the emotional temperature of the audience. What are the thoughts and feelings that they have when they're in that room? What are your what's your emotional temperature? Where do they coincide? So I do a lot of preparation with them before they speak. And great CEO communicators do this. They get it. And they get that they just cannot wing it. Hmm. You say use story. And I just want to actually go back. That the whole what's in it for them, because frankly, why should they give a shit? Is really like, <laughs> excuse my French. They're not there to see see somebody just flap their gums. Like give them something. That's what they're there for. They're there for themselves. It's kind of, I think, the, the takeaway. The question I have, though, is when you say storytelling, what does that mean? How does that work? Because I think we hear that a lot. But at the most mm-hmm. basic level, what is a story in the framework or in, the, in, in a boardroom that, that, that is something we can use? Okay. It's really a way of talking about your subject, whatever that is in an conversational, interesting, entertaining manner, using a few images and tidbits of information that grabs your audience. And so, for example, how many times have we sat in on presentations, speeches, lectures, and the person gets up and says, good morning, Today, I'd like to talk to you about blah, blah, blah. Then I'm going to tell you about blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to wrap up my remarks by telling you about blah, blah, blah. Well, Corey, I don't know about you, but I want to kill myself when I hear that. (laughs) Because I think, oh my God, you have just wasted your first impression, which can be anywhere. The first impression is made within seven seconds Then you have 15 to 30 seconds, if the audience isn't clear about how they feel about you, to cement this is what they're thinking in their heads. And if you start off with that very boring intro, you have just wasted precious seconds. And by the way, no one remembers what it is that you're going to do. So you need to wrap it in what I call, it's a story, but a goodie bag opener. And it's a story or a story with statistics, examples, anecdotes that grab your audience's attention, telling them what it is that they're in for, but in a much more interesting, descriptive way. That's yeah. what I, that's what I would suggest. Yeah. I've often thought about story and the things when I'm pitching myself or, you know, our services or other companies. And I'm, I'm starting to now just think through when I look at the audience, the, who I'm speaking to, when they start to light up, it's when I, I weave in these stories of here was the situation and then this happened and what we learned and what we did led to this outcome. Now, here's why it's important to you. I mean, that's, I can think of a couple of stories where I've used those in pitches, you know, that kind of framework. And it's amazing now to think back about the, the interest that comes out of that. And then I can also think I've made the, the mistake of, of jumping on and throwing some slides on a, on a shared screen as I'm, as I'm doing. And it's 
my God, the crickets. Like it's just, <laughs> you can feel the boredom. And so I also want to reflect on when I've seen presenters come on stage. One of them was the, as an example, was this was when cannabis was very hot in Canada. It was just coming out of the gate. We're, de- we're legalizing it. And this one individual storms on stage. Basically just everybody else is pitching. They do their lousy pitch. And then this, this gentleman comes up and completely turns the room upside down with his energy, with his story, with his impact. And in very intelligent private equity investors were just walking up being like, here's, here's my blank check. Like, listen, when are we getting the meeting? I don't know what you're doing, but I want to invest. It was night and day. And so there's a real opportunity for, for CEOs to do that. And when you think about the value of doing that, it can be huge. Well, I mean, when you think about it, is that 58% of what an audience takes away from the speaker is physical. So facial animation, eye contact, posture, body language, gestures, hair, makeup, wardrobe. Wow. Let me see if I can make this. Uh, I believe it's 33 is, or 35 is, I've got to take this up to 100 and I'm not very good at math, but uh, let's see, 58%, is it 33%, well, we'll figure it out, is voice, tone, pause, pitch, speed, and volume. Okay. The rest is content. And yeah. yet what does every left brain professional go for? It's, I'm going to tell you what I know, the facts, ma'am. The facts are going to make you write me that check. No, I've said this just thousands of professionals. No, it's going to make you boring, right? Now, of course, I'm not saying that the facts or your knowledge or expertise isn't critical. But think about those other things that are so pervasive and persuasive in someone's mind as they are speaking with you or watching you on stage. And that's something that, you know, before, when did I start this? 1995 or something like that. I saw this time and time again in every corporation that I went into with the training that they had for people. Hmm. It's yeah, a lot there. And I think that I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's nice. And I hope that those listening say, okay, let's, let's put a little bit more time into how we're, how we're presenting ourselves because it's, I think that there's a huge ROI for that time. Yeah. Especially mm-hmm. when you only get a, a few chances if, if you're raising money kind of thing, or, or just in a boardroom or looking to build your career. I want to, I want to come back to your career though, because You've built up your consulting firm, your, your, your agency for, for helping executives. Tell me more about growing that and how you've developed yourself and built up bigger and bigger clients. I am curious about that. Well, you know the film. Do you remember the film, Corey, The Accidental Tourist? No, I don't. Okay. Maybe that was before your time. If they made a film about my career, it would be called The Accidental Career because okay. I, I did not plan it. As I said, I was on my way to law school and then decided to go to 
you know, into acting and opera. So once I got to Wall Street and figured out that I had something that I could offer these people and really be of service to these people to bring out their best selves and to help them bring to their leadership style something that was really unique and special to them. I started really with workshops and executive coaching and doing it a lot, both with men and women. And then what happened was that as my clients accelerated in their career, they asked me to come with them and continue to help them as they got promoted and they switch jobs. And so I did. And I found that even though I hadn't been in the corporate world, I was able to help them through these transitions and uh, work with their teams and work with their boards and also design their careers in a way that they really wanted. So for example, if people wanted to get on corporate boards or nonprofit boards, I help them navigate that. And I help them navigate things that were really challenging for them and obstacles that they needed to overcome. And then I really saw the need to work with women in leadership. And I started developing programs around that. Things like certainly mastering the art of executive presence for women, navigating the narrow band, which means that there's a narrower band for women and women of color in terms of their behavior and communication than there is for white men. And then I wrote a couple books along the way. One is Brag, The Art of Tooting Your Own Horn Without Blowing It. And that got an inordinate amount of press when it came out 20 years ago. And I know I'm celebrating 20 years. I can't believe it. I thought I would be done, right? Everybody would learn how to brag in a great way. Well, that's not true. It's still a cottage industry. And yeah, so there'll be a lot of publicity around that because I just created a course. I was asked to create a course around bragging beyond bias. And that looks more deeply and focuses more on the challenges and obstacles for diverse communities people of color, women, neurodiverse, LBGTQI, et cetera. And then the women in leadership just kind of had a life of its own. And then I wrote The Hard Truth About Soft Skills. And I have just been very lucky at being able to really know what's important to me and what I value. And I don't work with anybody I don't adore. I don't work with anybody who's not working as hard, if not harder than I am. And I'm really curious about a lot of things. So I create that kind of interest. And if I can get it together, a program or a webinar or an article or something like that. I, I'm very impressed with the work you've done. As I mentioned, uh, you know, I'm impressed with the clients. I, but, <laughs> and I mean, even to the point, like, I mean, you've been, you've been published in New York Times, as I understand, Fortune Magazine, worked with international Fortune 500s, like just big names. And it's, yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's impressive. 
how about growth events or even you know really influential mistakes you've made? Have there been them and how have they been influential and beneficial? Because I think that oftentimes it's mistakes or the hard times that that can help people move to the next level. Mm. I think you're absolutely right, Corey. I think I would have to say, and this this has come up because I'm gathering around me a team of marketing people and publicists and social media. And so I was thinking about this as I've been interviewing people. And I think I would have to say that my disdain and disregard for social media has been both a failure and a blind spot. And I just have to own it. You know, I hated the whole genre, the constant posting, the humble bragging, the need for attention. It just bugged the crap out of me. And my publicist at the time when social media really started to get legs, she did convince me to do it for about six months. And I stopped after that because I couldn't stand it. And I swore it off until just recently because I, you know, I think that, that adage where you can teach an old dog new tricks, I've learned how important it can be and how to do it artfully. So finally, I am now on social media and I plan to ramp up in the coming months. But I think it really did hurt me and the scaling of my business. And I just dug my heels in. Hmm. I, I don't, I, I don't disagree with your disdain for social media. <laughs> it's, and you know, it, I think it is a very powerful tool. It's, it's part of our business. It's part of me getting this podcast out to the world. It's, this is a form of social media. And then we use platforms like Twitter and LinkedIn, but I've, I've been somewhat living under a rock about it as well. And I look at, at some friends that I have who built really interesting businesses, really heavily relying on social media. And I'm like, how in the hell do you do it? So let me ask that question. <laughs> what changed for you and how are you using this? Yeah. What do you hope to get out of it? That's a great question. And I'm glad I have an ally in this. Thank you. I appreciate oh, yeah. <laughs> it because I got a lot of flack for not being on social media. I rarely look at my Facebook page. My new publicist, social media person said, Peg, we got to make you a business Facebook page. I said, oh God, do I have to go on it? You know, and I think what reframed it for me was in the, the last year and a half coming out of COVID. And I really did a big look at the things that I wanted to do now in this, like, you know, as Jane Fonda calls it, the third act. And I realized that I wanted to do more work with women about them stepping into their light, stepping into their power, that if women don't do this, we are in really a bad way on this planet. And so knowing that, seeing that, experiencing that still after 25 years of working with women, and I started to say, what are the things that hold us back? And I did a lot of interviews 
and came up with things like the imposter syndrome, perfectionism, lack of confidence, courage, risk-taking. But the question that I asked to many hundreds of women from millennials to the oldest dear one is my voice coach at a hundred years old. You can believe it. Amazing. And when I said, what is the thing that you would do differently? And to a woman, they said, I would have more confidence. And Mm. that just blew me away. And I said, okay, Peg, you have to create a program, which I call Unstoppable, for women that looks at the strengths, the shadows, the confidence issue. How do we confidence, and I'm using that as a verb, any situation? How do we have the courage to move through any situation? The resiliency. So I created that course which is one that I'm just launching. And then the bragging beyond bias. And I think coming roundabout to your question is when I knew that this was my vision and this was my passion and that if I didn't do everything I could to propel it forwards, then I only had myself to blame. Wow. Okay. This is a, it's really powerful. I really, Really appreciate you you bringing this up, you doing this work. It's uh, I know Maddie and Susanna are going to love to hear this episode. They're they're <laughs> my coworkers, and it's just so powerful. So, can you unpack a bit of that confidence? And I think for women, it's it's really powerful, especially from this research and from the interviews you've done to see that this is the core piece. But I think it's applicable to anyone. What are some of the elements of that confidence and how can you start to build that up? Like, what are the stepping stones to to elevate your confidence? Well, I think as with everything that you see that needs either reframing or renovation or redevelopment about your personality or your communication or your leadership, I think it's really important to sit with yourself and ask some very difficult questions. So things like, am I really confident? If not, where does my lack of confidence show up? When I am confident, where does it show up and how does it show up? In those times where I don't exude that confidence, why and where does it come from? And really sit with that and I often ask people to employ other people in those conversations too. But I think you have to have that basis of self-reflection in order to move forward. And then I said earlier that in my newsletter, it says confidence does not equal arrogance because I think we confuse that. Arrogance is about putting yourself above somebody else, of boasting about it, confidence. And it can be seen in lots of different ways. But confidence is really knowing your abilities, your skills, that even if you are going through a difficult time, that again, as you said earlier, looking back and saying, well, 
I went through that horrible time. I can go through this one. And how did I do it? And what help do I need? How do I get that support? So it is that ability to really take yourself in hand and say, looking at your personality and your skills and the techniques that you use, this, this makes me capable of being able to, wow, function in the world and get through these difficult situations. The self-awareness, it sounds like, is such a big piece. You need that self-awareness to do that kind of audit of yourself and identify yes. these things. And then I think also the self-awareness when you're stepping into a situation that's going to take confidence to, to be, okay, you know, here's a situation that, that is going to challenge me. And, and so just getting yourself in that headspace so you don't revert to the old self is something that is that is is needed. So really interesting. We've almost ripped through an hour already. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and and there's just so many times I could just go down so many other I paths. know. Yes, this could be podcast upon podcast, but I also want to just add there's a phrase that was very popular I think in the 80s, 90s says feel the fear and do it anyway. Okay. And I think when I've worked with men and women who know that others feel that fear and do it anyway, they are boosted by that. I mean, I cannot tell you when I've said to people, of course I'm scared. Of course I'm nervous to get up in front of a thousand people. Are you crazy? And I've been performing for a long time, but the nerves are good and everybody feels this way. And I, I remember a guy said to me, Oh, Peggy, I never get nervous, you know. Uh, and I said, Hmm. And I answered a little snarkily. I said, Well, you're either lying or you're on drugs because <laughs> everybody gets nervous. And if you don't, and I learned this from my performing days. If you do not have a level of nervousness, of adrenaline pumping through your body, your performance is going to be very flat. So I think okay. it's really important for people to know that, yes, it's normal to be nervous. It's normal to have those little nasty roommates going on in your head. But knowing how to get rid of them and move on is just essential. Excellent. and. Now, just as we aim to wrap up, I, I am wondering, what other media do you read? Do you listen to podcasts and you know any kind of things that inform your world? What are they? I do. I am, I would say, kind of addicted to it. I do a lot of hiking out here in Santa Fe, and also I get on the treadmill. So I listen to Hidden Brain, Wiser Than Me. The New Yorker political scene, the Ezra Klein show, This American Life, Fresh Air, from my old haunts in the Bay Area, KQED. And I love them. And I love to read. I'm in a book club. So I get fed that way. And I created something out here called a soiree, where every month a certain group of us get together. Someone's responsible for picking a topic. And we've done everything from 
oh my God, the constitution to, I think this month is going to be, can you love the art, but not respect the artist? Hmm. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that keep me, my brain going. Amazing. Very intellectual. What are you reading right now? I'm curious if if there's anything. And the reason why I ask is I'm just finishing up A Gentleman in Moscow, which is a beautiful book. I loved it. I loved it. Let me see. Well, I just read a lot of Toni Morrison, Beloved, Sula, read, oh gosh, if I can get the, the name, we've been doing a lot of Japanese authors, Murakami, Sukaris, the, the colorless something of Sukaris. It's a very long title. I couldn't pronounce it when we were reading it. I'm also reading Annie Arnaud, who just got the Nobel Prize. And the flack around her and her writing is very interesting. There was a New York Times article about it. Just finished the book, The Happening and The Years and Good Daughter. She's very, she's very much a sparse writer. And I think it's very tough for a lot of people to read a woman who is very sparse in her writing and not flowery or loquacious. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Wow. A lot, a lot going on for you. Let's wrap up here, Peggy. Any final thoughts for the audience to wrap up our conversation? I think that is more important than ever to get really clear about your purpose and your values. And those two things are often, oh gosh, talked about kind of endlessly, but I really believe it, purpose and values and renewing that conversation with yourself about what it is on a pretty consistent basis so you remain true to that purpose and values. And I think the enjoyment of work is really important. Does it make you curious? Does it make you stretch? Because certainly, you know, a lot of my friends, Corey, are retiring right now. And they're saying to me, are you crazy? You're like going full bore (laughs) and we're all retiring. And there are moments at 2 a.m. in the morning that I think, what am I, crazy? (laughs) And then I go back to saying, well, you know, here's this course I'm doing on Unstoppable. And if you are truly unstoppable and you really want to do this, then you better walk the talk. Yeah. And with, with, with huge purpose. Peggy, I'm so glad we connected. Thank you very much for doing this episode. Thank you. It's been fabulous. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.